0: are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking together at chapter 13. The book of Acts, chapter 13, and you'll find this on page 921 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to be reading together verses 13 through 25. Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 25. Hear the word of God. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Well, having been commissioned in Antioch, the missionaries sailed to Cyprus, as we have seen. They arrived at Salamis and traveled across the island to the capital city of Paphos. And all along the way, they proclaimed the gospel in the Jewish synagogues. And these religious centers, God-fearing Gentiles also gathered, and this afforded them, of course, occasions to start evangelizing the Gentile world. And in the city of Paphos, they were given an audience with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. And by the power of Christ, they defeated and humiliated Elemas the magician. It was a tremendous display of divine power, and the proconsul took notice. It was a clear demonstration of Christ's super- superiority over all evil. Like the ten plagues that humbled the gods of Egypt, and like Elijah who defeated the priests of Baal, there is no God besides the true and living God, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian religion is superior to anything that this world has to offer. Jesus is the treasure for which a man or a woman would be willing to sell everything. And the Spirit opened up the proconsul's heart to pay attention to what was said, and the Bible says that Sergius Paulus was astonished at the teaching of Christ. He embraced the gospel, and he received the gift of eternal life as a result. So Paul and his companions then sailed northwest and came to the city of Perga in Pamphylia. And it was here that John Mark, young John Mark, deserted the two missionaries. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why he did this. But Mark's reasons were perhaps less than honorable. Because later, when Paul and Barnabas hoped to revisit the church plants, this is what Luke says. Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, And had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that Paul and Barnabas separated from each other. Mark was young, inexperienced, perhaps surprised by the challenges of missionary work. Because missionary work is rigorous, to be sure, and it's demanding, and it's not for the faint of heart. And on this side of heaven, I don't think we'll ever know his reason for leaving, but it was a hardship for Paul. And in one sense, I find it encouraging to know that the great apostle Paul struggled with this. At first, he had a hard time forgiving Mark for abandoning the mission. But later, there was reconciliation, we're told. John Mark had matured. Paul's heart somehow had softened by the Holy Spirit. And we learn that just before his death, the Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. You see, no true Christian stays the way that he is. Like Paul, we're all works in progress. I like the saying of John Newton that you've heard before. Near the end of his life, this is what Newton said. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I think that can be said of all of us. Well, the two missionaries traveled to Pisidia and Antioch, which was in the heart of Asia Minor. The city was situated on a plateau that rose 3,600 feet above sea level. And to get there, they had to cross the Taurus Mountain Range on one of the hardest roads in Asia Minor. This was a route that was notorious for thieves and robbers, so that you can imagine how difficult it was. But Paul and Barnabas were determined to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. And this city was the Roman Roman province of Galatia, to which Paul wrote his letter, Galatians. And he tells the Galatians this you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So what that means is the apostle was sick or injured or something, and yet it never occurred to him to turn back. So in Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath, they sat down in the local synagogue, and they were there to worship and to meet those in the community of faith. Because what better place to start evangelizing than in the synagogue? The Jews and God-fearing Gentiles already had interest in spiritual things. And who better to announce the fulfillment of prophecy than God's people? Besides, getting to know the God-fearers might lead to meeting others in the community. So the synagogue service had certain liturgical orders. It was very familiar to the Jews that normally began like we do with a call to worship and a recitation of appropriate prayers. And that was followed by a scripture lesson from the law and the prophets, which we read. And then came a sermon based on and related to the scripture texts that were read. And on this Sabbath day, the synagogue rulers extended an invitation for Paul to speak. His opening words indicated that both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles were present, and in a very short compass, he summarizes God's redemptive activity in Israel. Did you notice that? Did you notice that he rehearsed historical events He recalled many of God's historical mercies that were proof of his unfailing love, because Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God who maintains his promises. And all of these events serve as the backdrop to the crucifixion of Christ. And it shows that the Christian religion is based and firmly rooted in history. You know, the world religions are often based upon the thoughts and sayings of some teacher. And sometimes they claim historical origins, but the details are so obscure that we can't figure them out. But from the beginning, God worked through history to fulfill the promise of a Savior. And over the centuries, he reaffirmed and clarified the promise to Israel and the record we have it. The record of redemptive history is accurate, and the events are verifiable. God has not left himself without witness. We have the testimony of credible witnesses, eyewitnesses, earwitnesses. And isn't it encouraging that our salvation depends not upon how we feel or about how we perform in Christ? God accomplished our salvation. It is finished, he said. And therefore, you and I this morning can rejoice and be glad. And I think one of the observations there is that in sermons that we preach and in sermons that we hear, we ought to focus upon redemptive history. It's true, redemptive, the redemptive events must be applied to each person individually. We have to trust in Jesus. We have to walk by his spirit. We have to bring forth fruit in our lives. And there are some very important subjective elements of Christianity, but these subjective things are based upon and rooted in and flowing from the historical work of Christ. That's the pattern that that Paul follows in his letters. Have you heard this? The indicative... Then the imperative. In other words, the indicative, what is. The work of Christ and who we are in him. And then the imperative, the command, live this way. The objective historical events of Christ are primary and the things that we're supposed to do in response are secondary. And there are three things that Paul focuses on here. Number one is election. He began with God's choice of Abraham, whom he doesn't mention by name. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the three main patriarchs of the Old Testament. And to Abraham, God made the promise to bless all nations through him. So through his lineage, in the fullness of time, the Savior would arrive. And to ensure the descent of Messiah, God entered into covenant with Israel. They were called his special people, a nation set apart and protected and blessed. As Elder Miller read, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. Amen. He is the promised seed, you know. He's the offspring of Abraham and the royal son of David. And the same God who was in covenant with Israel chose those patriarchs. He called Abraham out of Chaldea simply because it pleased him to do so. There was nothing special about Abraham, he wasn't even a Jew. It just pleased God to do it. He was an idolater. But from before the foundation of the world, God had set his love upon this man, Abraham. And out of mere love and mercy, he chose him to be the father of many nations. And so the Apostle Paul begins his sermon by underscoring God's sovereign initiative. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jews were the recipients of unmerited favor. Israel was great, not because of her size, not because of her strength, nor because of her superiority. Though undeserving and ill-deserving, she had been chosen by God. And he favored Israel for no other reason than his sovereign good pleasure. He was faithful in keeping the covenant promise that he had made. As Paul says in Romans 11, As regards election, Israel is beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And this doctrine of election is taught throughout the whole Bible. I honestly don't understand how so many can flatly deny this truth. They may not like it. That may seem unfair to them, but how on earth can we reject it when it's clearly revealed? When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. Notice what it says. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Both were sons of Isaac, by the same mother, conceived at the same time. And the only difference between them was made by God's choice long before they were born. It's his purpose of election. He chooses some... He passes over others. That's sovereignty. It's according to his sovereign will by which he extends or withholds favor as he pleases. What shall we say then, asks Paul. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And let me just say that this biblical truth is fundamental to a right understanding of the gospel. Jesus said it this way, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, of course, here he's expressing his free and sovereign love in choosing the disciples. They had nothing to do with it. Those men were just as evil as all the rest, but Christ chose them. He elected them from before time began, and what this means is that the basis of our salvation is not found in us in any way. God's everlasting love for us is absolutely sovereign and free. I hate to tell you this, but there is absolutely nothing about you or meal that appeals to him, that appeals to him. Nothing. He chose us. Not because we're more lovely or noble or strong or profitable than others. None of that. In fact, if you and I had perfectly fulfilled God's law, if we had loved him with our whole heart, We would be nothing more than unprofitable servants because that's our duty. No, God elects his children simply because he is love. And it pleases him. And this is love, says John, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Lord Jesus chose us out of this world of darkness for himself. He chose us to be his disciples. He chose us that we would bear fruit. He never calls us to something for which he doesn't equip us. And he chose us and we abide in him and the spirit brings forth fruit of our lives. Isn't that wonderful? And I also feel compelled to say something about the prevailing Arminianism of our age. It's wrong to teach that a man dead in sin can somehow choose Christ. That's an error. Dead man can't choose anything. Sinners are incapable of trusting in Christ. The God of Israel chose the fathers and made that people great, and he took the initiative. And those who claim in our day that sinners can somehow choose or reject Christ as they will are in serious error. They can be Christians. I'm not questioning their salvation. I don't know how they can be assured, but they can be Christians, but they ought not to be teachers. They shouldn't be in the pulpit. Nicodemus didn't know that regeneration precedes faith. He was ignorant of the new birth. And this is what Jesus said to him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? You shouldn't be teaching Nicodemus until you figure it out. Doctrine of election. Number two, Doctrine of redemption. Paul refers to the great redemptive deliverance at the Exodus, where God's people were living in Egypt and multiplying under his blessing. God enlarged them exceedingly, and he made them great, so much so that Pharaoh felt threatened. And as a result, the Hebrews became slaves, enduring hard bondage. And then God exercises his almighty power to deliver them from their slavery, The ten plagues which disgraced the gods and humbled the nation and liberated the Jews. And his people were delivered from the harsh servitude by signs and wonders. It was the greatest work of redemption recorded in the Old Testament. And that Egyptian bondage has been likened to the spiritual slavery of sin. Because you see, sin is a far more powerful and cruel and tyrannical tyrant than Pharaoh ever was. Every sincere believer has been delivered from the house of bondage. As Christians, we have been liberated from extremely bitter slavery. It's not something we did. It's something God did through the work of Christ. And Paul says that God puts up with this people through the wilderness and blesses them despite their ingratitude, rank ingratitude. For 40 years, he fed them with manna. Their clothing didn't wear out. He protected them. He provides for them. He leads them through difficult terrain. And all the while, he's preparing them for the promised land, which flows with milk and honey. They didn't lack anything. And yet they murmured and complained. But God bore with them. He didn't deal them, deal with them as their sins deserved. And so we echo the psalmist's sentiment when he says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I have to say that I think each one of us can say the same. How thankful we can be that God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. Why do I complain so much? What, is, what reason can there be for me to be discontent? I admit it. It happens daily. Why am I so impatient when my time is interrupted? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits. Well, then the Lord finally led them across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, and he gave the promised land to Israel after destroying seven nations, the nations who had filled up the measure of their iniquity. And God dispossessed the people of Canaan for the sake of his chosen nation. And all their needs were met as God supplied them with judges, of which the last was Samuel. The cycle of sin and repentance and deliverance and restoration repeated over and over again. And God blessed them, raised up judges who served well, but the fix was only temporary. It became obvious that Israel needed a king who could serve as a faithful shepherd. So Paul goes on. Election, redemption. Promised king. They asked for a king, God gave him one. I think it's a lesson that we should be careful what we wish for because King Saul was a disaster. His 40 year reign ended in disgrace and he committed suicide. Israel had been impatient, you see, very impatient. So the Lord taught them that it's wise to wait for his choice. God removes Saul, but did not leave his people without a shepherd. He raises up David, a man after his own heart, who is a sincere believer. Now you're saying to me, yeah, but David, we all know what happened to David. He wasn't perfect, but he was honest in his love for God, and he was faithful unlike Saul. And the will of God was the standard by which he carried out his reign. Yes, he fell into sin. Yes, David transgressed the law, but his sincere repentance is a monument to the efficacy of God's grace. Look at Psalm 51. The redemption in Egypt, the settlement in Canaan, all foreshadowed foreshadowed good things to come, and that succession of kings came to a climax in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. God promised David that his descendant would occupy the throne, and that descendant is Jesus. As the New Testament genealogies point out, he is of royal blood. Paul mentions the herald, John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Lord, who came preaching a baptism of repentance and calling the Jews back to God. And when he was questioned, he confessed that he was not the one promised by the Father, He was simply the forerunner saying, behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Jesus Christ is infinitely superior. So far above John is Jesus Christ that he is not even worthy to remove his sandals. And the Jews should have welcomed Christ. They should have honored him. They should have been his loyal subjects, but were instead his persecutors. And thus our king offered himself in our place to spare us from God's wrath. And there never has been and there never will be a more perfect and powerful king. And after he rose from the dead on that third day, he was exalted above every name. And Daniel says to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So as our king, our exalted king, Jesus exercises his power and his authority for our salvation. As a prophet, he revealed the way of salvation, As a priest, he accomplished our salvation. And as a king, he applies salvation by calling us out of the world and bestowing upon us his saving grace. And he rules in our hearts. And we're going to reign with him forever. So in closing, let me just say two things. This implies, I think, the sin of and abject misery of those who reject the rule of Christ. They would rather endure the tyranny of Satan than the blessing of Jesus. The devil hates his subjects. The devil grinds them with oppression and he rewards them with misery. And yet how few, relatively few, come to Christ. They're happy to remain slaves under the fierce bondage of sin. So let's pray. As a church, we should pray that they'll come to their senses and receive Christ as King. But on the other hand, this suggests that we who receive Him as King should be His loyal subjects. His glory and His honor should be our aim, and His will should be our standard. And though we cannot see him, he sees us, and he cares for us deeply. Our king is gentle and lowly in heart, and he deserves our worship. So let's trust him with all of our concerns, and let's let's rest content with his wise and holy providence. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was rejected by his own and crucified by those who hated him. And Father, we recognize as well that our sin put him there. We thank you that he is exalted to your right hand. And we pray that our worship and service of him would be sincere as David's and full of joy and thanksgiving. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.